Welcome to Now I See, eye-opening stories from the formerly faithful. I'm your host, Amber White, and here, me and my guests share our experiences in loving and leaving rigid faith systems. Together, we shine a light on the dark corners of these institutions and share the joys of rebuilding life on our own terms. I promise you'll leave inspired, even if you are a little teary-eyed. Hello, and welcome back to Now I See. I'm your host, Amber White, and today I'm bringing you our first anonymous guest. For many folks, it can take years to feel comfortable putting themselves out there after leaving their faith. It took me 13 years to do this podcast, for example. And for many of us, speaking out publicly just isn't part of our journey, and that's okay. I won't be bringing you anonymous episodes very often. There's only one this season, but they may happen on occasion because this podcast is, most importantly, a space for people to share in a place of safety. I'm excited about this episode because we're going to hear from someone who was part of a very different type of Christianity than we've discussed so far, Catholicism. There is a long and violent history between Protestant and Catholic faithfuls, and as you'll hear in the episode, Sarah and I both heard the evils of the other side in our childhoods. It's amazing how the need to be right can divide people claiming to serve the same God, isn't it? As if God could possibly care about the way you're baptized, or if you kneel the right way, or say the same man-written prayer the right way. But for all the flavors of Christianity we'll hear about this season, something none of us former faithfuls get to escape is family tension. I have listeners that are brand new to leaving and still keeping their lack of church attendance a secret. And grown women in their 40s and 50s still navigating it decades after leaving their childhood churches. It's one of the hardest parts of the journey. And after 13 years... I can't say it's gotten any easier. I've just gotten better at it and stronger in my sense of self. But I remember the early years like they were yesterday. I was so nervous that the topic of faith would come up and I'd have to deal with the emotional outpouring or suppress my actual thoughts or, worst case, have to explain myself to people who had little respect for me or the fact that I didn't want to talk about it. I avoided it like the plague. For most of us, family life after leaving the family faith is never the same. There is always an underlying tension. 
even if it's just in ourselves, because we know that given the opportunity, the family will do their damnedest to try to get you into a conversation for the sole purpose of trying to prove to you that you're wrong. And it comes complete with a lot of guilting and shaming and emotional appeals. If you're thinking that we should just be rational and come to a mature agreement, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but that doesn't exist in the extremist world. In the eyes of the most deeply devoted, there is no compromise, no agreement, no settling. You're either in it their way or you're out. Which, to be fair, is a lot of pressure on a parent if they're truly worried about their child's eternal soul. And a lot of loss of control for the more narcissistic parents who need it to feel safe and project the right image of their lives to make them look good. In short, it's complicated, it's multifaceted, it's messy. But if there's one thing I want anyone out there struggling with family tension post-faithfulness to know, it's that this is your life and you have to live it for yourself. My biggest regrets are when I made choices to please other people or get their affection or their praise or even just their attention. You will be your best, your happiest, and your wisest when you're listening to and deeply respecting yourself. And you don't have to explain yourself to anyone. You're allowed to not be a believer for any reason or no reason at all. You don't have to spend your time crafting just the right arguments and defenses. You don't have to provide endless, well-researched proof unless you just want to. It will more than likely fall on deaf ears anyway. I promise your time is best spent getting to know who you are, what you like, and what actually matters to you. Sarah, our guest today, is doing just that. And I'm so glad you're going to get to hear just how much fun she's having exploring her inner world. As a warning, there is a brief moment in this episode that contains mention of physical abuse. Okay, now that I've said my piece, let's get into the episode. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the podcast. I am so excited to have you here today. Really looking forward to talking to you about this topic because, you know, growing up Baptist, my understanding of Catholicism is limited at best. (laughs) (laughs) I think my first introduction to Catholicism was being told how wrong it is. (laughs) Yeah. And those little gospel chick tracks that they like lay out in conservative like evangelical churches mm-hmm. that were all about like how to witness to a catholic and it involves sending them <laughs> to hell and like just a wild ride of terrible <laughs> <laughs> so i'm really excited to have you here to one dispel some of those myths right <laughs> get some of those myths out of the way but also to learn and to hear more about your story and your experience so again thank you for being here i'm really excited to have you Yeah, Amber, thank you so much. I am also really excited to be here. As a young Catholic, I think that, you know, that street goes both ways, right? We 
I had I had some very funny experiences being taught about the Protestant kids that you might you might meet in class, right? So I think yeah, we're here today to break down walls. You know, yeah. we're not. <laughs> I'm not Catholics aren't uh, the Antichrist, and neither are the Baptists. So. <laughs> Maybe they both are. Maybe that's the problem. <laughs> mm, you know what? You might have a point there. <laughs> <laughs> you might be onto something. Yeah. So as I do with every guest, I would really love for you to kind of give me a lay of the land of what it was like growing up for you, what your family was like, and kind of what your experience of Catholicism was throughout your childhood up to high school and all that. So I was born and raised into a Catholic family. My father was also born Catholic. So we call that a cradle Catholic, right? You know, not a not a convert. But my mother uh, did convert to Catholicism when she married my father. She was originally Lutheran. And so people always say like converts sometimes are a little more zealous than than those of us who were born into the faith. And I think that there's some truth to that. But I grew up going to this Catholic church um, in a small town in North Carolina. Um, and it was the only Catholic church in the county. So it was, it was pretty large. And had we had a very large Latinx population as well, but that stayed honestly pretty separate. I think like the English speaking and the Spanish speaking church stayed pretty separate. And then I, I went to Catholic school all the way from kindergarten to eighth grade, and then went to a public performing arts high school. And that's kind of when I started to maybe pull back a little bit from the church, and um, which makes sense, right? I was no longer in it every every single day, and I was meeting people outside the community at that time. That's pretty much it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious if they're like you're talking about convert versus cradle Catholic. Is there a yeah. hierarchy? That is an interesting question. I don't know necessarily that anyone has a higher status based upon how they came into the faith. However, sometimes I do think there's like a little bit of a competition to prove how devout you are. Whether it's said or not, I think that people who have converted to Catholicism feel like they have something to prove, right? That they are validating their choice to have this life change. Yeah. That's interesting. Are there any ways that you can point or anything you can look back on with your mom that you can see like her trying to prove herself? Yeah. I mean, both of my parents are, are super, super involved in their church still are they were but it was it's interesting i remember as a kid my mom's family is still all lutheran pretty active in the church i mean she has a, a cousin who's a lutheran pastor you know so it wasn't like she came from a like lukewarm family about of religion that they were very very involved in their in their faith so that was always an interesting thing for me to to witness, right? Because you'd think like, oh, she left the Lutheran church because she just feel like, you know, she wasn't super attached to it. And she's like, well, my husband's Catholic. And that, you know, that, that'll just make sense for me. But I remember as a kid, like, listening to her kind of argue with her parents about their beliefs. And that was always really strange, right? Because she had a lot of respect for her parents. And I think that that family structure is very important to her, but she had no qualms with kind of telling them that she thought they were wrong, which was crazy to me because she would never do that in any other aspect of her life, right? Like, right. and something that she believed that they had more knowledge over, like she would never have corrected my grandmother about a recipe in the kitchen, but she was pretty quick to, to say, you know, mom, I think you just need to think about a little more critically about 
about your beliefs and, and how much fuller the Catholic Church is. She's like, wow. you're not getting the full experience. Full experience. That's interesting. Yeah. Wow. Oh, that mother-daughter dynamic within <laughs> within families is fascinating to me. Yeah. And I think there's generational gaps are huge anyway, but now you're looking at different religious beliefs. It's interesting to me that your mom and grandma had that and you and your mom kind of have that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is interesting. I, I think back even to my own mom, like she and my grandmother do share a lot of beliefs, but, or, or did, but she and my grandmother did have very different beliefs. And there was no one in the world that my mom respected more than my grandmother. And I'd say that's still true, that there's no one my mom loved more than our grandma, Sadie. Mm-hmm. But they would definitely still dispute over politics and religion. And I just think that is the most fascinating thing in the world. Because like my mom would drop everything to go take care of her, but they were going to butt heads over <laughs> being, <laughs> you know, yeah. having this different belief system. So I just think it's interesting how that that escapes none of us. If we don't stay in the same religion, there's going to be this divide. Yeah. It's, it's devastating, I think. I I agree. You know, my grandparents never really spoke to me much about their experience, like watching their daughter essentially like denounce her entire life and belief system, like everything that they have taught her. But I, because I was, I was young, right? Um, my grandmother died when I was in middle school and I don't know, I don't have that type of I don't want to ask my grandfather about that necessarily. He's 90 now. So like, <laughs> right. but I have heard some things, you know, from other family members now that are telling me, you know, like things that my grandparents had said to the family, like, well, they need to be careful with what they're teaching those kids. Cause if they force it on them, they're, they're just going to leave. You know, that my grandparents would say that about, about my parents, never, never to me, but something that I've heard recently. And I'm like, Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so true. Mm-hmm. It is true. Like the more it's pushed, the more it's like, please stop pushing. And that's a tough dynamic. For me, when I was first walking away from fundamentalism, and I had to make that break with my parents because we were all in it together, right? We were very enmeshed and tight knit. And so for me to break away, it was a it was kind of a big deal. Mm-hmm. And that initial break, you really have to create some space because their whole goal is to get you back into it and to show you how you're wrong. And because they're scared for you or they're scared of this change or they're scared of what might happen. And they're parents. <laughs> That's what they do. They, they worry about us and they want to make sure that we're going to be okay. And when your eternal soul is on the line, you know, the pressure is on to, I think, really get you back into it. And it's it's interesting to me how that supersedes, or maybe not supersedes, that is more important than the relationship. Wow, that's really that is really well said. And it's something I've been thinking about a lot actually recently. I it's something that I didn't really understand until recently, how truly scared that they are, like that how genuine that is for them. I sort of left or or started cutting ties with the church when I was uh, in high school, you know, um, young adult, 18. And I don't know, you hear anything your parents say, you just sort of roll your eyes at at that point. They would always say like, you know, Sarah, we feel like we're failing. We're failing as parents. We're failing as Catholics. And when I was a teenager, I was like, oh, they're just being dramatic. Like they just don't, they just want to control me, whatever. And I think as an adult, now I really see like, well, now I see. Yeah. 
that it really is coming from a place like they are genuinely afraid and they th- like they feel like they have failed mm-hmm. as parents and as Catholics raising young Catholics and that is kind of heartbreaking to think about like I don't I think my parents are wonderful parents. Mm-hmm. I'm not, they're not perfect, right? You know, everybody makes mistakes and I don't necessarily agree with everything, all the practices they used to raise me, but I don't think that they have failed as parents by, mm-hmm. by any means. Not yet, at least, you know, I'm only 25. So <laughs> we'll see. Maybe I have plenty of time to flop, but it, it kind of breaks my heart sometimes to think about that. Yeah. However, it still doesn't change the fact that I am not a part of that community anymore. Right. And it does affect your relationship, right? Like they put that mm-hmm. obligation to ensure your eternal soul before the relationship of parent and child. It's something that my brother is kind of struggling with a lot right now. He, I think we, we might have talked about this before, but he's about to get engaged. Right. And he's not Catholic anymore. And his bride to be is not Catholic, was never Catholic. And so they don't want to get married in the Catholic Church. And my parents are taking some real issue with that. And I'm really, really worried that this argument is going to spiral into like a a large divide in the family. So I'm interested to see how that plays out. That's devastating. That's a huge time in somebody's life. Getting Mm -hmm. married is a huge decision, a huge decision. And to not have your parents' support due to the location. Ooh, that's brutal. That's hard. It's so brutal. And it's not they I mean, they love her, my brother's uh partner. Yeah. They adore her. They think she's excellent. And they love my brother, obviously. But I mean they have frequently RSVP'd no to like weddings of children and their of their friends because these kids didn't want to get married in that Catholic church and they have told them. <laughs> and they've like burned some bridges with some like very long time family friends because of that, which is just crazy to me. I'm like, I get that you feel like it's your obligation as a Catholic to like speak your truth to some extent, but like at some point it's just none of your business, right. <laughs> quite frankly. Right. I think what people who didn't grow up like we did, right, like deeply entrenched in a religion mm-hmm. don't understand is that when you make that break and you decide to live differently, it is a masterclass in boundary setting. With the people, right? With the people who for most of your life did not have boundaries with you because they needed to change your diaper and (laughs) make sure you didn't die. (laughs) And you know what I mean? Like, so I think there's a double whammy of normal parent tension there where it's like, hey, I need to establish myself as an individual. And that's a really important part of development. But I think you throw in this religion piece and all of a sudden it's an emotional whirlwind. (laughs) And there's this extra thick, hard to cut through layer. And it just makes the process so much harder, I think. Mm -hmm. Because it's not just, hey, I want to take this class, not that one. Stop telling me what to do. It's, I don't know if I believe in God or not. (laughs) And I'd really like to respect (laughs) my privacy around the matter and let me come to my own conclusions about what is true and what is not true. Yeah. And that's the craziest part to me, I think. I mean, we talk about mother-daughter relationships, right? That is so difficult for me to understand about my mom is that she did make a choice. She decided Mm -hmm. to do this. And you think that would make her the most understanding person in the world about somebody who's struggling with their faith. And I think to some extent she tries to understand, but she feels like 
she is made the penultimate decision like this like she's correct and like well now that i've figured it out why would anybody else want to do anything different and so i'm like there's that she gets over that wall and it's like i don't it does not compute it i don't i don't understand and she doesn't understand me because she's made a decision to be catholic and i have made a decision not to be and she doesn't understand that she only understands the decision to become a catholic right but i'm like well you decided not to be lutheran anymore so but she yeah she doesn't understand the going back as as she sees it she sees it as regressing that's a tough thing there is no closing that gap right there is only managing the relationship at that point Mm-hmm. You know, when you're, when you are exploring, right? Like you're exploring, like what is out there? What could be true? How do I want to live my life? Do I want to be associated with any institution, much less this one? And they've decided and they are set on that decision. You can't bridge that gap. You can't drag them over to the open minded, let's explore side with you. You can only live your life and hope that they understand and continue to love you. And you can only let them continue to do the same. And I think that's such a sad, that's something I've mourned a lot over the years. There's just no way to force that same amount of closeness because you're always going to have this little bit of a divide. You're always going to be going, please step back a few steps for me in this issue. And they're always going to be trying to drag you closer. And it just creates an underlying tension that for all the love in the world will still be there. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. And I warned that. I think, and I'd love to hear your perspective on this as well. I think when, as a young person, the both of us decided to leave the religious communities we were in, your priorities shift in a big way, right? Huge. When you are in a Christian community, you are taught that it's God first and everything else second. So God, family, and then everything else, right? And when you leave the church, God is no longer your top priority, but the people you love, God still is. And so like, I think that might be like the biggest divide for between me and my my parents is that like, for them, they are Catholic first. They are, mm-hmm. quote, children of God before anything else, before even they're my parents. They're, they are mm-hmm. Catholics. And I just don't see, like, I... That's something that like I just can't even begin to understand anymore. Not that I ever really did understand because when I was a Catholic, I was a child, right? Like how right. much of my understanding, how deep was that? I don't know. Yeah. I think about that too because like I was a studious kid. I, I don't know mm-hmm. what your experience was like, but I my understanding of Catholic schools is they're very big on education, right? So you're doing mm-hmm. a lot of of educating yourself, but also learning in school. I was a studious kid. And so I'm I'm reading the scriptures over and over and over again. And I'm just not coming to the same conclusions. I'm just not. Right. And I'm seeing people say one thing and then do another. I just can't overlook it at a certain point. And I think looking back, I wanted to be in it so bad because I'm such a horrible people pleaser. It's it's a huge problem of mine that I've had to work on a lot over the years. And it has put me in a lot of terrible situations, but I really wanted it. And so I tried really hard. And so I look back and I'm like, what part of me truly believed this? And what part of me or how much of me truly believed this, I should say, and how Mm -hmm. much of me just really wanted to for the sake of making everyone around me happy and at peace. And that's an interesting thing for me to think about sometimes. 
Yeah, that that is really interesting because I think that like a lot of our religious beliefs as children, yeah, it's just rooted in our like base personality tendencies. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I was a, my parents like to say I was a rather precocious child. <laughs> Same. I don't know. Yeah, I think a lot of it just came from a sense of wanting to belong, right? Yeah. I was I went to a Catholic school and so all of my peers were being taught the same things that I was and to be argumentative and to be contrarian would be to set yourself apart. And when you're 12 <laughs> and in middle school and it's the worst time of your life, mm-hmm. that's the last thing you want to be is different. Right. So you're not right? Like I I wear the same khaki skirt as everybody else. So I'll say the same prayers as everybody else. I think too, the stakes are so much higher when you're younger. When you're an adult and you decide to walk away, there's only so many consequences you can face. Right. And most of them are of your own choosing. When you're a kid, your entire world is wrapped up in this and, and being contrarian with your entire church, your entire school and your family is dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's the case for for any child. I mean, you you live in the community that your parents have set up for you because you have to. Like, I have to be where my parents say I have to be because I'm five. You know, I'm a kid. Like, yeah. <laughs> just yeah. like I can't be left alone. So right. <laughs> I go, I go where they tell me. And so, you know, that's less of an issue, right? Because when you're a kid, you just see it as like, oh, well, this is just where we hang out. This is what we do every Sunday. And it's when, I mean, I think that's when most people start to have doubts and schisms to, to speak about the Protestant Reformation, the great schism of your of your childhood, is when you're coming of age, right? You're, you're, you're trying to assert your own independence and individuality, and you start to realize that like, oh man, like I am here not because necessarily I have to be anymore. Like, you know, I've got my driver's license now, like I could just leave. But then you, you start to examine of like, well, why do I want to do that? Is it because I can or is it because I need to? Yeah. And that's a tough decision to get to. Like you start thinking it. And for me, it took years to even explore that further. It's a process. Mm -hmm. I found that that going towards that schism, like letting it happen. I'm curious what some of the things were, um, since you were kind of deeply entrenched in it, what were some of the things that came up for you that kind of sparked your decision that like I don't I don't think I want to be part of this anymore. Yeah. I think things started out sort of on a superficial level, right? Like uh when you're 16, you don't want to wake up at eight in the morning on a Sunday to go to church. Right. Like, <laughs> like I think I just at first was just like starting to find things annoying. But then I in high school I no longer was going to a Catholic school. I was going to a public school. And when you are that age, you're starting to come to terms with a lot of different parts of your identity. And I was starting to like really question and discern my own sexuality. And I was not out in high school. I didn't, I was not out until college, but I started to realize that like, oh, I maybe I'm a little different. Like maybe I, all those things that they said about like, about gay people and like them going to hell, like, oh God, what if that's me? Like, what if that, right. what if that happens to me? Like what? you know, am I evil? Is there something wrong with me? You know, you really start to discern those things. And when I was in high school, I met, you know, I had some queer friends. I'm like, oh no, they're not the devil. Wow. Look at them. Like, they're just yeah. <laughs> lovely people and started to see examples of how I could be okay. I think that was a big deal for me. I think also, I, you know, when you're in high school, you start to b- form your own political beliefs. 
And I started getting, and especially in college, started getting more involved with activism and things like that. I don't know. I, I think it came from a lot of places, right? Like a self like identity crisis, right? Like I started to realize that who I am in my truest self can't exist in the Catholic church because I'm condemned just for being who I am. And then beyond that, I'm seeing people that I love and care about being condemned for who they are. Um, that's just really not something that I can understand. And so I started to really examine, you know, why were we all feeling this way? And I started to realize that like churches like the Catholic Church and the Christian Church and, you know, any of these major religions, it really does come from a place of control. And so mm-hmm. it kind of brings me back to my original point of like, wow, I was, you know, 14 and I didn't want to get up at eight o'clock in the morning on a Sunday because I felt right. like I was being controlled. It's so, like, that's a really small, very shallow thing, but it's still rooted in the main problem, right? Right. That I, I wanted to be who I was on my own terms. And I, you know, I didn't really start to see that until I moved out, you know, went to college, but I was starting to really realize that in high school. Yeah. At what point did your mom or or either of your parents really start to pick up on the fact that like, maybe you weren't in this? Was there a moment or was it gradual? I think it was, uh, it might be a little gradual because I mean, it was a big, big shift for me going from Catholic school to public school. And in the Catholic church, um, when you're about in eighth grade, you go through confirmation. And this is like when when you are confirmed, it's like a year-long process. Like you have to take extra classes to do a project on your patron saint. You have to go to a bunch of retreats with other kids your age. And like then you have this big mass where you're anointed and you essentially are saying like, I am now an adult in the church. I am recognized as an adult in the church when you're 14. <laughs> but it's really the first time that theoretically, like, I am choosing to be Catholic, right? Because up until this point, I was baptized as an infant, so I had no autonomy over that. And then the other sacraments you receive, your first confession and your first communion, you're under the age of 10. So not a lot of autonomy in that. It's when they dress you up like the child bride, like we were talking about before. <laughs> say your confirmation is really the first time when you're asked to, like, say that you're a Catholic. So that happens in the spring of my eighth grade year. And then less than six months later, I'm no longer in the community every single day. So it was it was interesting. Like you're given this theoretically this power to say, like, I am choosing to be Catholic, and immediately thrust into a larger community right. that is not so I don't want to use the word oppressive, but controlling. And I think it's at least that's when it started to happen for me. It was sort of a culture shock, right? I was like, I was essentially told, you know, this is when when you when you're confirmed, like you're choosing this, you're choosing this. But really it wasn't a choice because it was shoved down my throat every single day, every hour, especially for the last year. It was my entire life. Every day after school, almost every weekend, we were doing something to prepare for your confirmation. And then it was no more, right? Like the only really connection I had at church anymore was Sundays. And so yeah, that was really, I think really jarring for me <laughs> as a young adult. Um, and my parents really did. They really wanted me to go to a Catholic high school, but the closest one was like 45 minutes away. And I really wanted to do theater and there was a performing arts high school in our town. So I wanted to go there. And I did. I won that battle to some extent. But I think my parents started to notice that I uh, wasn't fully invested anymore a couple years into be, being in high school. I started like sleeping through my alarms on Sundays, not wanting to go to church and um, like faking sick, stuff like that. And then I don't really I, – I think this was maybe my sophomore or junior year of high school. 
there was this particular Sunday that was like really a a shift. I just wouldn't I wouldn't get out of bed. I was refusing to go. I didn't want to go. I didn't want to do it. You can't make me. And I remember distinctly like my dad dragging me out of bed, throwing me on the floor, saying, You don't have a choice. You have like you have to go. Wow. And I was like, I was then drug into the bathroom, told to take a shower. Like he stood outside the shower, waited. You know, wow. I was going to church. And I, I mean, there were tears, there was screaming, <laughs> there was just, and that happened. And then they didn't force me to go anymore after that. I imagine that was traumatizing for everybody <laughs> involved. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They still asked me to go every Sunday, and there still was argument, but that was the pinnacle of that. I don't know. It was re- it was really scary. I, I like didn't really know what to think or what to do about it at the time. I was like, oh shit, I guess I'm going. You know, <laughs> <laughs> was that like the most awkward car ride of your life? Oh my god, yeah. I think I just like put in my headphones and was like listening to oh what like Death Cab for Cutie in the car or oh, something yeah. like that. It's like they don't get me, but really it was like it was really scary. I like I remember going to church that morning and didn't sit with my parents. You know, I sat in the back in the vestibule mm-hmm. and I was yeah, I don't know. And I I've never talked to my my dad about that that morning. It was I don't know. It was really scary because I don't see him get angry very often but when he does it's yeah. very big. Yeah. And he was was really angry that I was deciding not to go to church. <laughs> wow. That's a really emotional and terrifying moment. Mhm. I'm really sorry that happened. And I'm sure he is too. Yeah. Probably why it's never been brought up again. <laughs> yeah. No, totally. Yeah, my dad is uh Irish Catholic, so people joke Irish people hold all their emotions like right in the middle of their chest. And then you, uh, then you die. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> you don't ever let it out. It's funny, I have so much Irish in my family, and yep, that sounds about right. That's pretty funny. Yeah, it's um. So he's you know very quiet, but he's like a funny guy. He's very like, and he and I have a very light relationship now. But I remember seeing him get mad a lot when I was a teenager with my brother and with me. But that's really the only emotion, like big emotion, he would ever show would be like anger or frustration. Everything else is pretty even keel. Huh. Well, the way we socialize men, I'm sure, has a lot to do with that. Mm-hmm. But I'm also curious, do you remember how the Catholic ch- or the Catholic Church that you grew up in, how they talked about anger? I mean, it's a sin, right? It's wrath is one of the seven deadly sins. And the Catholic Church talks about emotion, I think, in terms of extremes being sinful. Yeah. Anything anything in extremity, anything in excess is a sin. So yeah, I think getting really, really angry, not good, you know. <laughs> but interesting. I was just curious if I think sometimes in the church I grew up in at least, anger was bad and good. It was interesting. It was a very mm. much of a roller coaster relationship with what anger was good and what anger was bad. Because righteous anger was this big holy thing, right? Right. Absolutely. I mean, you th- we we talk about the only t- – they say like the only time that Jesus ever got angry was in the temple, right? When he's right. turning over the tables and screaming and breaking things. And that – I never understood that. I was like, it seems kind of out of character for that guy, you know? <laughs> like, I was like, as an adult, now I'm realizing I'm like, yeah, outbursts of 
of anger is is not is not healthy. It is much better to be just you know honest with your emotions in the moment rather than trying to maintain this image of like a stoic rock that like men are expected to be in the church. Yes. And then exploding. Like that's not <laughs> What's interesting to me about the way anger was taught in the church and what it sounds like it was taught in your church as well. When you're always suppressing your feelings. And I think but I think especially your anger, which is like the fieriest of emotions, I think. Mm-hmm. When you're always suppressing it and you're never releasing it or you're never expressing it, you don't ever give yourself an opportunity to open that window of tolerance any wider. Mm. So you're just always trying to force it shut rather mm-hmm. than learning how to open and release it in a way that's healthy and allows for a free flow of ideas like that air in and out, right? And I think it's kind of sad because I think it perpetuates a guilt and shame cycle mm-hmm. where you explode in anger and then you feel really bad. So you repent and then you're like, I'm never going to do it again. But then you continue to suppress all those feelings. What are you supposed to do with that? There is no getting better if you don't let yourself be angry. So I hold really, really fast to the statement that when you leave a religious experience or you you leave a religious institution to go out on your own and create your own life, let yourself be angry for as long as you need to be angry. Yeah. Because if you don't just let yourself be angry, not only are you going to extend the painful time by tenfold, mm-hmm. you're never going to learn how to manage that feeling and move on with your life. You're you're never going to learn how to let that anger exist without exploding. And you're never going to learn how to place it in context with the rest of the other feelings that come with it. Mm. And so I just encourage people like, I, I'm sure you're still going through this because I remember being 25. Oh my God, nine years ago. I feel so old. <laughs> but, and, and just being so angry. And, and yeah. I, but I, I didn't know how to manage it. I didn't know what to do with it. I can't go just scream at my parents. Like they, that's not going to be helpful. And so mm-hmm. it just took a long time for me to work through some of that anger. And I remember getting really frustrated because stuff would come up and I would get like, at a certain point, you just can't hide the snippiness in your voice. At least I, I can't. Mm. And I remember I hated being compared to like, you need to stop being angry like so-and-so because that anger is going to da And I'm like, you're the problem. <laughs> like, right. Stop. <laughs> you're making me angry. If you would just let me be angry, I could move on. Yeah. And I finally did. And I got to tell you, it was great. And I've learned how to look past like I'm mad and into like what is making me mad. Mm-hmm. What is it tied to? And like, can I get to the root of that? And it's a good practice. So I encourage you as you continue on your journey of self and of, you know, your belief system to just let yourself be pissed off sometimes. Yeah. Because it is shitty that the church comes between you and your parents. You're right. Yeah. That anger is something I definitely really struggle with. I cuz I still do have a relationship with my with my family and it's hard to hold two things at once sometimes, right? It is. But yes, I like it it does it angers me so much that like I can't be fully honest with my parents about who I am and what I believe out of fear of losing them. Right. Because they are told that like anyone who believes the things that I believe is wrong and you know, kind of <laughs> damned for lack yeah. of a better word. And I think the anger that comes up for me sometimes is like, 
yes, my parents made choices and that's, that's what that is. But at the same time, they were indoctrinated mm-hmm. by an institution, whether or not it's classified technically as a cult is operating like a cult. Mm-hmm. And that comes up a lot throughout the podcast. Institutions that operate like cults, they are very controlling and they use fear and shame and guilt to control people. And they've gotten really, really, really good at it. Yeah. And so I've I've learned to turn a lot of my anger towards that institution. And that's kind of where a lot of this podcast came from, right? Is like, I think enough, like, like these institutions are doing a lot of damage. Maybe we talk about that. So I think it's interesting. I don't know that I've mentioned this yet, but I, I was a religious major in college at a secular school. So it wasn't, I had no intention of going into the seminary or anything. It was honestly, I think, simply out of morbid curiosity of <laughs> what my other options were. But one of my favorite, favorite classes that I took was a new religious movements class, which is a nice way of saying cult. And it's really interesting. My professor was you know, very adamant about being careful about that word. And he's saying, he's like, the only reason nobody calls the Catholic Church a cult is because in the public eye, it operates in the lines of society, right? Mm-hmm. But all of these all of these things that we consider to be cults, like let's take Jonestown, for mm-hmm. example, started at its core, not on the fringes, right? I mean, they wanted to exist to help oppressed populations have access to food and education. And it was only when power shifted to exist on the fringe that it was considered to be a cult, right? So like then the things that were in the public eye, things that were at the forefront of this movement were not necessarily (laughs) condoned societally, right? And that's when people started to take notice. But like the Catholic Church, for example, if everybody talked about how technically they believe in cannibalism to some extent, if you phrase it like that, if you phrase it that way, people are like, what? What? And you're like, no, no, it's just communion, right? But like, it's mm-hmm. all about it's all about PR. It's all about the spin, right? So true. That's so true. Some of these things we consider cults might just not have good marketing, quite frankly. Yeah. I, I think that's that's probably true. You can't look at Pat Robertson. I don't know if he was mm. big in your life or if you know much about him, but you can't look at Pat Robertson, who like is regularly going against his own teachings and making exceptions for them and be like, hmm, maybe something is afoot. Like, I don't know. Yes. Maybe something is a mess yeah. here. Like, I don't know. It's just, I think a lot of things could be considered cults. Oh, yeah. If you dig into them a little bit. Oh, yeah. I would definitely put fundamentalism up there with that. Because for me, if you have to control people that much, mm, maybe. Maybe. Maybe maybe they don't want to be there. Yeah. (laughs) And I understand the need to have rules and laws and things to keep things moving in a certain way and to protect people. But when it comes down to, oh, you're listening to music with drums in your car and therefore you are displeasing God, Mm -hmm. maybe that's a little bit too much control. Maybe that's a little bit unnecessary. What I think about a lot is that if you need, if an institution needs to use shame excessively, really at all, Mm -hmm. but excessively to keep people in line or to keep people coming or to keep people in the fold, if you will, Mm -hmm. maybe you're a cult. (laughs) Maybe you're a cult. Maybe you're a cult. (laughs) I mean, I think shame is an incredibly powerful tool that is wielded by anyone who holds even an ounce of power, right? I think that that's what keeps people in line because shame comes from a place of fear and it's it's incredibly powerful. 
And it's really scary because, I mean, that's something like I am no longer in the Catholic Church, but I still deal with my Catholic guilt, my Catholic shame. Every single day there's stuff that comes up for me and I'm like, what the hell was that? Where did that come from? And I'm like, it's something that I don't know that I'll ever fully dismantle for myself because, I mean, from the get-go, we were taught, I mean, the first book of the Bible to taught to be ashamed of your body. Right. That's, you know, that's in the first breath, baby. Like <laughs> they, they found knowledge, they found realization and clarity. And then somehow that's shameful. I don't know. It sets the tone, you know, <laughs> it does set the tone. in a big it way. Does. You know, what's interesting to me about that fear too, is that it's so blinding hmm. that there are like blatant inconsistencies in the thought patterns and in, and between the thought patterns and the actions but they just go completely unaddressed and unnoticed mm-hmm. because to challenge that is to activate that fear. And the fear is your eternal soul being tortured for eternity. It doesn't get a lot worse than that. So there's a lot yeah. of, there's a lot there. <laughs> but I think about, I was thinking about this earlier today before we got on our call. You had mentioned a story or you had told me how your mom is the breadwinner of your family. Mm-hmm. Right, she has this incredible job in a male-dominated field, but she's still the primary homemaker, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that just blows my mind. Yeah, it's crazy. How are there that many hours in the day? I don't know. How does she think she has a time machine? <laughs> I know, right? Well, what was interesting to me about it is that she was kind of. She, I'm sure she tried to instill those values of womanhood in you, right? Mm-hmm. But you're looking at her and going, "But you're." a badass and you're in this very male dominated corporate field and you still come home and say that men are the top of the totem pole here like Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. lack of a better term right now that's interesting to me yeah it's something that i still don't really understand it's like i said before there's that wall of logic Mm -hmm. she's on one side and i'm on the other and i don't know that like she can explain it to me all day but i don't I don't get it, right? Like she works, she like she's the primary breadwinner. She works, you know, five to nine. <laughs> and she comes home and still cooks for my dad, does the laundry, does the dishes, cleans the house. And my dad handles the financials. But like the crazy thing is, is it's not his money. I mean, some of it is, but most of it isn't. That's so wild to me. The feminist in me could never. I know. And she's kind of resentful of that also. Like she is interviewed she's been interviewed a couple times for like magazines about top 100 women in business in North Carolina she did that a couple years ago she was i think it was a magazine in Charlotte that it ran and she was happy to do it because her company asked her to do it but she was like you know Sarah she's like i don't really get it you know she's like i don't really think about myself as a woman in business like a feminist she's like I'm just doing my job and i'm like mom i was like that's so crazy i was like that <laughs> That's so crazy to me that she's like I don't she's like I don't think I need to capitalize on. She sees it as like a marketing ploy. Wow. That's interesting. She's like I'm not a feminist. That's not who I am. So, if I were your mom, I would also be resentful cuz I bet she's given up everything to be able to do both and to maintain that. I really like I really don't know how she does it. Like I <laughs> I could barely take care of myself as like a person who has a full-time job. And I'm like, oh, I got to make dinner for me. <laughs> like, really? looks like it's popcorn again. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's exhausting. And I don't, and I've asked her about that before. 
And this is the part that's hard for me, right? Is because she really does get so much joy from taking care of her family. And I don't think that there is anything wrong with that at all. For a long time, I was I was very short-sighted on that. I had a very small understanding of what it meant to be a feminist and what it meant to fulfill your role in life. And I, I want to start off by saying that what women do in the church and what women do for their family is incredibly powerful. These institutions could not function without women. Not for a week. Full stop. And what they're doing is so important. But they... I, <laughs> I want them to understand that, that what they're doing is vital, but also mm-hmm. that you have a choice, that you don't have to do that, that your value, my mom's value is not the fact that, I mean, like, yes, that she's my mother is incredibly valuable to me, but like, if she wasn't, right? Like, if for some reason she couldn't have children, that she's not anything less, right? That like, right. you have another choice, you have the option to be valuable in any any way you desire, right? Like you don't just have this one role. Right. And you're valuable for the work that you do outside of your family and inside of your family. Yes. Yeah. It's all valuable. You're a whole person. And I just think, you know, I too have had that limited belief. Like I remember my early 20s kind of being like, no stay-at-home mom life. F that. Yeah, no no yeah. way. I'm gonna be da-da-da-da-da. Right. And now that I'm older. And I've thought about it and I, you know, I was a nanny for a long time too. It's a lot of work maintaining a home and raising children and making sure they're fed and that they don't die. It's a lot, much less trying to raise emotionally intelligent, healthy, you know, smart, like whatever, like it's a lot. And I, I think something that I hear on the feminist side of things a lot that is a problem is this like disdain for stay-at-home moms. And I think that narrative really needs to shift to what Mm. we're talking about here and what you said so wonderfully, which is like, all of these things are valuable. All of these things are incredible. Women do so much. They do everything. Yeah. They do everything. And it is absolute insanity to me (laughs) that they're so chronically overlooked for that. And it just, it makes me sad. And I think about all the ways my mom was overlooked her accomplishments, but then how your mom is overlooking her own. And, you know, it's just kind of like, this is a wild ride. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And it's also just sort of the default in most people's minds, right? Like over the holidays, this was kind of funny, but also like when you examine it, you're like, oh no. <laughs> we were in a group chat with my dad's side of the family, aunts and uncles, some of the older cousins, and I'm texting back and forth about, we're going to get together the day after Christmas and um, what's everybody going to bring? Who needs to do what? And everyone's responding. And which is funny. Like it's like my dad's got some great comedic timing, but it's very true. Like when we have these family get togethers, like if we're hosting at the house, like he'll, uh, you know, leaf blow the porch. Right. And like, he'll take care of that. (laughs) He'll get ice. But like my mom is like up at the crack of dawn, like chopping and sauteing and baking and cleaning and setting the table and yeah and creating like a warm hospitable environment for everyone to have mm-hmm. a good time and like it's unbelievable what i think women can hold but i think as incredible as that is and as much as women deserve praise for that i look at my mom and i wonder if you've had the same experience i look at my mom and i'm like how much of your self did you sacrifice to be everything to everybody yeah you know, you've made this decision, like, I don't want to be part of the Catholic Church. 
and mm-hmm. you went to college, you graduated, you're working, you're independent now, you're you're living your life. I'm really curious like where your spiritual journey, if you want to call it that, your beliefs, your journey with your belief system, where that has gone and kind of where you're at now and, and what your thoughts are. I think as uh, an adult, a new adult, I think we all struggle with this. I'm like finding a sense of community, right? I think that's what I do miss most about being in the church because, and I'm starting to realize it now rather than when I originally left because when I originally left the church, I was still in school, right? So I had kind of a built-in community, mm-hmm. people with the same identity, student. And so it was a little less lonely in that way. But then as an adult, it's really hard to make friends and to find community when you don't have that built-in structure. And so for me, in my spiritual practices, I think the most important thing to me right now is finding a sense of community. And then my spiritual life is a little more personal, a little more individual. But I recently was like, okay, I got to figure out, like, I was like, I got to join a club. I got to do something. Cause it's like, I, the only people I hang out with are people I work with. And like, that is not ideal all the time. Right. So a friend of mine and I joined a pole dancing studio. I'd never done anything like that before, ever. Like, it was really scary for me for a lot of reasons. But like mostly because it's like, you know, you're told your entire life that sexuality is like one of the gravest of sins, expressing right. your sexuality and cover your shame. Exactly, exactly. But uh, I have loved, loved being a part of the studio. It's been um over a little over a year now that I've been dancing and I love it for so many reasons, right? Like I feel super strong and super sexy and like I've never felt that before, ever. Yeah. But also I'm surrounded by these people you know, once a week who are helping me feel that way and I'm helping them feel that way. And like, we're experiencing it together and like, there is no shame around it at all. You know, everything's just like out in the open, literally and figuratively. It's really, really cool to have this new little community that to be, to be a part of. And then spirituality for me right now, in a a more literal sense is like, I really starting to get into individual practice with some pagan roots. Really love tarot. I've really been trying to like be more conscious of celestial events. So like being mindful on full moons and shifts in the seasons and things like that. A friend of mine for Christmas, I love to cook. A friend of mine for Christmas got me a kitchen grimoire. That's amazing. Yeah. I'm really excited to start cooking through it. So this witch, she is like put together different recipes based seasonally, all seasonal ingredients, which is wonderful. I, I I love to try to cook seasonally as much as I can, but also like for marking different celestial events. So there's a meal, like a feast for spring and summer and winter. There's a feast for all the zodiac signs, for eclipses, all this stuff. And it, it I don't know, that practice, I don't know. I really, I really loved being very mindful about what I'm putting into my body. Yeah. I've never really done that before. It's been a really cool experience and I'm learning and very new. And like, I think I am still pretty bad at being diligent about ritual um, because mm-hmm. for most of my life, consistency and ritual was so important. And I have a little bit of resentment towards that. Oh, yeah. And I'm a little, a little burnt out on it. So, no, I don't catch every full moon. I'm not a straight A student when it comes to that, but I'm trying. And um, it's been really interesting to shift from like your spiritual practice being your community, like that being so intertwined. Um, and not really having a lot of privacy when it comes to it comes to that 
to now it being like just me, really. And occasionally, like I share that with others, right? Like if I try making one of these meals, I want other people to eat it. Like that's really important to me, but it's people I choose. I love that. And I love that you're getting to go on a solo journey while still Mm -hmm. finding other ways to create community. Because I think it's important, especially in the early stages of like trying to leave and figure things out to establish your own belief system rooted in the things that you've seen in the world. Mm -hmm. And so I just love that you're getting to do that and that you're really taking the bull by the horn, so to speak, (laughs) but also trying to create community through things that were once considered shameful. That's, that's an incredible way to heal. I love that for you. Yeah. It's been, it's been really, really cool. Sometimes really hard, right? Like a lot of stuff comes up when you're so like behaving counterintuitively to like how you were, you were raised to be. And I hope that someday I'll I'll get to a point where I can be honest with my family about that, but they have no, <laughs> no idea <laughs> yep. that I am doing that. And that's okay <laughs> for right now. It's okay. It's yours. Yeah. It's yours. It's not everybody's. Yeah. And I think I think that's a great thing. So as we kind of come to a close here, mm-hmm. as you know, I ask every guest the same two questions. I'm just super excited to hear your answers. So the first one is what do you see clearly now that you didn't see when you were enveloped in Catholicism? You know, Amber, I thought the question would be easier after we talked, but it's still really hard. That's okay. I think I see myself a little more clearly now. I think that for so long, a lot of the stronger aspects of of myself and who I am and my identity was taught to be ashamed about and to hide and suppress. And I'm still actively working on on being my full self, my full truth. I'm not out to everyone in my life about being a bisexual woman. My parents don't know that I like to pole dance several times a week, but you know, they do know that I'm an ally. They do know that I'm pro-choice. They do know certain things about me that are innate and very important to who I am as a person that have nothing to do with the Catholic Church. And to just like removing my all of the ties in my identity to the church has been really clarifying. And yeah, I think, yeah, if I was going to say like what I see clearly now is is me and who I can be outside of all of that. That is beautiful. And I absolutely love that for you. Thank you. Thank you. That is so exciting. I am looking forward to seeing how you grow on this journey. And I'm really excited to see what things you learn about yourself yeah. that you don't even know yet. It's it's really exciting. Me too. Am I allowed to ask you that yeah. same question? I would love to hear yeah. your answer. Yes. So uh, this question is being asked to me on my episode. Um, oh, good. But I'll answer it more than once because oh, yeah. I, when I first came up with the question, I was like, oh my gosh, what is my answer? And I started really, I really had time to think about it. So mm-hmm. for me... It is people over institution. Hmm. I, for so many years, up until I was about 19 or 20 years old, put a belief system and a very specific church and a very specific way of thinking and a very rigid way of existing in the world above the human experience. Hmm. That was the most important thing. And now, after many years away from it, I'm coming up on 13 years after leaving, I just see individuals 
so much better. And it is a much more beautiful way to live. Mm. It's a wonderful feeling to live in a world where you can make space for all kinds of people, where you can learn from other people's experiences without judging them, and where you can actually make a difference because you're not just worried about whether or not it's being done in a specific way. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, I'm really grateful for that. I really love that. That is really, really cool. And I think that like what you're doing with this podcast is really living out your mission statement in that way. Thanks. That's really cool. I'm excited about it. And I'm excited you wanted to be here. So I have one more question for you because I want to end on a high note because our journeys aren't just the trauma parts, right? It's all about what we're doing, what we're becoming. And so I would really love to know what your greatest joy is in this journey so far, or maybe even a few moments of joy. It's up to you. But I'm wondering, you know, we all have things that we cling to that make it worth it for us. What are Mm -hmm. some of those things for you? Um, I think moments of joy for me are seeing that I can be fulfilled, be a whole person without the church. Mm -hmm. You know, I think for so long, I was taught and my parents said this, like if you don't, people who don't have the church are empty. Mm-hmm. If they don't, they don't have a foundation. There's nothing rooting them to anything. And that really scared me. A big part about le- like why I was hesitant in leaving the church is I thought it was going to be like free, <laughs> free falling through the universe, like nothing tying me down. And I found so much joy in being able to choose the things that root me and really customizing it. A whole grab bag of like individual truths and building blocks for my life and kind of getting to know like what really is important to me as a person has been really, really cool. That is gorgeous. (laughs) I love that. Well, Sarah, thank you again so much for being part of this podcast and for sharing your story. It was a pleasure to have you. I continue to be inspired by the way that you're embracing the journey and taking your time and exploring the world. And I just think you're a lovely person. And I'm really glad that I got to know you. (laughs) Amber, thank you so much. And I'm so pleased to be a part of of this as well. I think this podcast is so important for not only everyone listening, but your guests. I think that like, I've learned so much about my spiritual journey just today talking with you. Lots of things coming up, which has been really, really cool. So thank you. The pleasure is mine, I assure you. (laughs) (laughs) It's a a beautiful journey for me too. So thank you again. Yeah. Thank you for tuning in to this episode and being on this journey with me. You can find resources and links in the show notes. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, rate, and review, and follow along on social media to help us grow. Now I See is independently funded by me. If you'd like to help support the show, you can donate directly or purchase a merch item on the website. Music for this episode was made by Alana Sabatini, a former faithful and talented musician. And finally, this podcast is made possible by the incredible team at Softer Sounds, a feminist podcast studio for entrepreneurs and creatives, providing technical skill with tender support.